Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com on our previous episode with uh, johannes roberts as our guest we had our first ever contest on postmortem and we put forth a question and that question was where johannes and i first met and several people came up with the right answer the answer was there in the interview if you listened closely uh johannes and i met at Strasbourg, France, at a fantastic film festival there. And um, so a lot of you got the answer right. And we randomly selected three of them, and the winners get a Blu-ray copy of A Quiet Place, courtesy of our friends at Paramount Studios. So the winners were C.J. Dan, Brett Glattman, and Talib Pali Pesh. So we chose them from all of the forms of social media, one from Facebook, one from Twitter, and one from Instagram. So we may do this again. Let us know uh, if you'd like to uh, continue the contest. And uh, congratulations to the lucky winners, and thanks again to Paramount for it. As a writer, a painter, a musician, or a filmmaker, you're very, very fortunate when you can connect with a huge audience. You always hope that what you make will be appreciated, understood, even embraced by that audience. That is the point, isn't it? To communicate your thoughts and stories in such a way that people want to watch and listen, right? I've been writing my whole life and directing for over 30 years now. Sometimes you connect big. The Stand miniseries was one of the highest-rated miniseries ever. And sometimes you don't. Riding the Bullet is a very important movie to me, but it was a critical and box office bomb. Everyone who works in the arts for a living has their hits and misses, even the most successful among us. But the dream is to be part of something iconic, something that sticks in the public psyche, and that is certainly rare. Hocus Pocus started its life as Disney's Halloween house when I first started working on writing the screenplay for producer David Kirshner and the Disney Studios. It took eight years and another 11 writers before it actually went into production. And when the film finally came out in 1993, it was a modest success with pretty mixed good reviews. What a difference 25 years makes. Hocus Pocus now shows in theaters and on television constantly, especially around Halloween, and has become iconic. I can't tell you how many people I meet get so excited when they find out that I wrote it. 
Recently, the American Cinematheque at the Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard celebrated 25 years of Hocus Pocus with a panel that featured me, producer and originator David Kirshner, production designer William Sandell, makeup effects maestro Tony Gardner, and composer John Debney. It was a magical night, and we're sharing it here with you on Postmortem, followed by a little bit deeper conversation with Kirshner for the last half of the show. So come with me and run amok, amok, amok after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and we are at the American Cinematheque in Hollywood, California, to celebrate Hocus Pocus. A group of us responsible for the making of the film uh, are here tonight for a Q&A after we've screened the film. It's 25 years that this film has been here. And so Jim Branscombe of Cinematic Void is going to introduce all of the guests and moderate this discussion. And we are live in Hollywood. Take it, Jim. Thank you, Mick. So, let me introduce guests. I'll start with Mick Garris. He was one of the writers on this film. He's sitting right here. I want to bring up David Kirshner. He's the writer-producer and basically spearheaded this project. Nice what, throw. I want to bring up special effects artist, Mr. Tony Gardner. Yeah. I want to bring up production designer, Mr. William Sandell. Thank you. And last but not least, I want to bring up the composer of this film, Mr. John Debney. John's the only one I've never met before, so it's a real pleasure to meet you tonight. It's a really fantastic school. And I'm going to apologize in advance that we only have four mics, if you guys don't mind sharing. So, so I'm going to start a little chronologically, because this is a very interesting project, because what you just saw on screen isn't necessarily its original intention. So, David and Mick, why don't you talk about the original genesis of this project? David created it, so I think he should uh, take the, the reins of that open. Uh, it started as a, a bedtime story for our, our daughters that are now 38 and 36. And um, it, they seemed to enjoy it so much that it became a, an article in Muppet Magazine. And um, Disney had passed on what was going to be my first project. And um, they asked me if I had anything else. And I had said that I had this Halloween story. And they said, well, let's set up a pitch. And so I went into a room uh, and decorated it. I had witches' brooms hanging from the ceiling and a, an Electrolux vacuum cleaner with the engine taken out hanging from the ceiling as well. And they walked in and I had dry ice in a big cauldron and my wife had taken uh, about, about 25 pounds worth of candy corn and put it in a giant Ralph's bag and we had kids on the block decorate the bag uh, like it was a Halloween bag. And, uh, and then we tore the bag, and right in front of them, we put uh, all this candy. And they smelled Halloween, and I said to them that Halloween, at that point, was almost a billion-dollar industry, and there's, there's no films out there for families. And um, Halloween since has become a $10 billion business. But they, they bought it. It took uh, a long time to make it. I had known my friend Mick here since uh, we were both very young and working with Steven Spielberg, and um, he just seemed the right person to make it of, of heart and humor and, 
as you guys know with Mick Garris, very scary. And, um, Personally. And, <laughs> and he brought those, those elements to it. And Well, I, I, have this, I was working on amazing stories at the time. I was writing them, and I directed one of them. And, and David had been doing, he had done an American tale for Spielberg at the same time. So our paths crossed there. And I remember this fantastic meeting. And David had set up something very similar in the Amblin conference room. And the two of us pitched it to Steven Spielberg together. And this cornucopia of all these autumn vegetables and all the candy and broomsticks and stuff. And Spielberg loved it. And then he heard that um, Disney was involved. And he said, wait a minute. No, I'm out of here. <laughs> this is done. They were feeling very competitive for the family audience at the time between Disney and, and uh, Amblin. But it was one of my first um, studio jobs to write a feature film screenplay. And it was an amazing experience. David, you may not be able to tell by his tender demeanor and everything, but he also created Chucky. So. With Don Mancini, yeah. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, it, it was one of the best experiences, writing experiences of my life. And I've had really good ones all along. But it was such a great launch into the, the big studio feature film sort of thing. Not that I'm a family film kind of guy since those days, but I, I really had a good time. It changed a lot. I was the first of 12 writers who worked on this movie. Literally 12 writers. I mean, David, was this project always envisioned as being more of a like a family-friendly kind of horror movie? It, it was. I mean, my original story was scary, um, and and Mick brought it to another whole level that made it so much better. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it was intended to be scary. And I'm looking down the aisle there at my dear friend John Debney, the very talented John Debney, who did the score to this, and yeah, and. and <laughs> I mean, it's something people just love. And it was just one of those moments in time that here was this young guy that did something and the world paid attention. Disney signed him to a three-picture deal. He made the ASCAP BMI new composer of the year as a result of the score that he wrote for us. And, uh, you know, it was so many incredibly talented people. My good friend here, Tony, who we've worked on so many films together over the years, brought so much to it and he'll go into the specifics of that of what he's able to bring to life is is amazing and and bill here just the whole look of it i've often said that the movie looks like a uh like a hallmark card from the 40s a halloween hallmark card and bill sandell brought that to life in such an amazing way i mean you could you can almost smell halloween from what what bill did with on that water wheel I, every time i see it it just brings tears to my eyes of what you created with that stuff i was gonna ask you john because you're the only one that kind of got your start with disney correct and everyone else kind of worked in horror like bill worked on dead and buried and worked with paul verenhoven tony did return living dead david obviously did child's play mick did was one of the you know one of the guys that really pushed horror. He worked on fly too and stuff like that how did you fall on this well I, I wouldn't, boy, that's a story right there. David Kirshner, I didn't know David. We knew each other a bit. But I must say, I, I give all due credit both to David Kirshner, and I wouldn't be sitting here had it not been for David Kirshner and James Horner. Uh, James was going to do this movie. Um, 
And through a series of circumstances with his schedule, I think he had to pull out. David, you you know more than, than I. But I remember Disney called in a panic, and I had done a lot of work for them over the years. And I think that there was no time left, right? There was like weeks, maybe two weeks or something. So they needed somebody that could come in very quickly and get this job done. And so I took a meeting or two with you and David and the other Disney I, I do want to say he had also done uh, for us um, Ray Bradbury's The Halloween Tree. Yes. And, um, <clears throat> yep. and Which was did such a just a score that is so sumptuous and beautiful and emotional and evocative. And so there, there was so much to believe in, in in this very young guy. Thank you. And, and yeah, so it was, I guess, fate and... Uh, because of my good friend David, he took a chance and he fought for me. And I have always thank him and hug him and love him for giving me that chance. Because that was, you can imagine, a pretty big break for a 30-something-year-old kid who'd in the main done television and done theme park rides and, you know, maybe one movie. I think we did Jetsons, the movie, together. So <clears throat> that's kind of how it happened. It was very fluky and I was at the right place at the right time. This is for David. At what point did this become just like kind of like a scary like family-oriented horror film and then Bed Midler comes on board? Yeah, the, the first person that, and I maybe said this to, to Mick, I don't know if anybody else knows this, the first person that I really wanted for Winifred Sanderson was Cloris Leachman. And that was the first person because I was so in love with her from, uh, from the Mel Brooks films, from uh, Young Frankenstein's especially she sing as well. no she doesn't sing as well and it, it was never even thought of as as a musical it was just supposed to be a spooky kids movie and um and then it took a lot of years for it to happen i mean it uh, it was sold in uh 1984 and it would be nine years before we we had a film yeah i i actually wrote my drafts eight years before the film was made yeah. And by the way, Tony worked with me on Sleepwalkers as well in Psycho 4. Yeah. So we have a maestro. Now, I want to talk to Bill real quick here because you also brought one of the key components to this film because you had worked with Kenny Ortega before on um, Newsies, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I. I had, I, I had a great relationship with Kenny. I love him to death. And I heard about this script, the Halloween script at Disney, and they kept bugging me, well, go get your friend Kenny, because I thought, well, Kenny might hire me if I can get him. And he was busy uh, scoring Newsies, and he was like, get away from me. I'm like, Halloween, it's my favorite time of the year. And a uh, little meeting you later, another Halloween buff. So finally he did it, and I was so happy to get aboard. Um, I, I, you know, I remember the, the, the shoot was a, one of those happy shoots. I mean, it was just so much fun. The girls were, the kids were great. Kenny's great. It all starts at the top like that. David was drawing the most beautiful Halloween drawings of all time that I still have a couple of. Um, you know, Bet, uh, Sarah Jessica, Kathy, all rehearsing in the corner of the stage and seeing them work out bits to do. Some of all of those, they worked them out together with Kenny and Peggy. Uh, uh, you know, by the way, Mary Vote's costumes are unbelievable. I, uh, I, they're all over the internet. I mean, the the way they, the way they it's, it's 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 unbelievable. 
uh, Hiro Narita's cinematography. He was such a wonderful cameraman. I mean, the, the, I just watching it again on this big screen, it looks so beautiful. It's just amazing to me. Now, Tony, how did you become involved in this project? Um, I don't know how I became involved. Um, I think somebody asked if I could build an animatronic cat first. <laughs> and uh, it kind of grew from there. I, when I read the script, I was sort of obsessed with the zombie guy. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, everybody loves Billy, right? Yeah. I mean, so, now, well, you've done the split dog. Yeah. Oh, the split dog for, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Which <laughs> are living dead. Um, when, when I had read the script, I actually, there were these Mac Tonight commercials on for McDonald's, and there was this tall, skinny guy with this giant moon head playing the piano and sliding down railings and doing all this stuff. And it's like this poor guy, obviously, is making this look like he's having the best time of his life, and he's wearing a 20-pound head. And I'm like, if he can do that, he would be so great for this, because my obsession was, who are you going to find who's not going to utter a single word for most of the movie and be endearing and be scary and be everything else. And I became obsessed with these commercials and I hunted down the guy that built the moonhead and I asked who the, the actor was and he actually had a head cast of Doug Jones behind his garage. Like it'd been rained on and painted on and it was like coming apart. But I asked if I could borrow it and every design for the character I sculpted on Doug's head and said, if you want it to look like this, you have to hire Doug Jones. Now, I had never met Doug Jones, and he never paid me any money, but I just knew he was the right guy for the job, and then when I met him and, and saw what kind of a human being he was, it was just like, this is going to be a really good time, and he brought so much to it, and we sort of played zombie on this in this fantasy world. This We would all, like, be so thrilled to go to stage because the house was there and the wheel was there and the water was there and everything worked and Hero had lit a psych all the way around and had trees so there was a sense of depth to the whole stage so you would go onto the stage and it was it was everything was lit so you could shoot from any angle so it was literally like it was Disneyland for Halloween people and all of us are big Halloween yeah and, and you know, it was at Disney Studios. But, I mean, it was like one of those magical moments. And to see that film and that experience become a similar experience for the people watching it nowadays just makes it that much more special. So I don't know how I got there, but I love that I'm there. And I love that it continues. And our kids and our kids' kids enjoy it as much as we did. I wanted to say real quick, Doug wishes he could be here. He's currently in Canada on the, I think, the new Star Trek show. Yeah. Like, when I wrote him, I got a message right back. It's like, Doug would have loved to have been here, but he's in Canada. And it's just like, well, you should say that Doug is the, uh, he's the sexiest fish man in America right now. Yes, in Guillermo del Toro's great film, Shape of Water, and he's done a lot with Guillermo. Guillermo but yeah. Tony really discovered him for our film. <laughs> Besides heart attacks, McDonald's finally did a good thing. I probably I do. I do also yeah. want to say we quickly mentioned Kenny. Kenny Ortega was uh, just 
showed the life of this film, the happiest human being in the world, and the entire crew would do anything for for him. He brought so much to it. I, probably the most important moment in the film is a moment that on paper I hated because just the idea, you wait, you're going to turn this into a musical. And it, it, it's the truth. It, it was the, I put a spell on you scene and I was sure it would be awful. And he made it so wonderful. I didn't want to stop the action. I didn't want there to be a, uh, a, a musical number. And it's, it's everybody's favorite number. And in Florida, there's an entire show uh, based around it that sells out at the beginning of September and sells out all the way through November 1st. And it's, it's that song, but it's also the witches putting on the, the uh, Hocus Pocus uh, villain spooktacular that they do. And it's, it's, it's quite great. But, uh, it, but K- Kenny is just kind of in all of our souls as to what, what he did on the set and what he brought forth. And truly, the nicest human being on the face of the earth. This, this was, for me, the, the best production that I've ever, ever worked on. I mean, it was just so much fun because of the, the Halloween of it all, because of, of dear friendships and then friendships that would, would form. Uh, but it, it, was, it was like going to Halloween camp. I mean, it was just so much fun to make this movie and to walk on to the biggest studio that the Disney lot has and to see this massive witch's house and graveyards. And it's just, it was shocking that we got paid to do this. It was just so much fun. <laughs> you, you know what I was thinking too is uh, Kenny was so great with the kids. Yeah. Vanessa, Omri, Thora. We used to go into the screening room to look at dailies and we, were, we would see little Thora Birch and our, our mouths would drop. I mean, she was unbelievable. And Omri and Vanessa is so beautiful and such a fun... You know, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is right at the beginning that had nothing to do with... I love... We're in Salem for a week, uh, Halloween, the 300th year anniversary of, of the, the poor witches, the real witches uh, in Salem being killed. And they were building this wonderful memoriam there. And we're there for a week in Salem on Halloween, shooting and all the fall leaves are falling... And I was watching that scene just now at the beginning of the film when Vanessa is walking along and Omri's catching up with her and they're little flirting and the leaves are falling. I mean, it just was... And that touch of the red coat. Oh, oh the red coat. I love, that, I love that red riding hood coat that Mary Vogt put her in. It's just, she's, it's just radiant. And, and Omri is like, he's such a great kid. You know. Can I say one thing musically? A couple things? Because you brought it up, David. Um, and I want to mention that scene that you're talking about too, but you, you can imagine I came into this thing late, having no idea, and then all of a sudden I'm thrown into having to write all this big ninety-piece or- orchestral score in literally two or three weeks. And one of the things Kenny did, and again, that's why I love him also so much, is that we would have these discussions about what kind of music and. And what should it be? And he said the same thing to me, David. He said, you know, this is really a musical, John. He goes, don't tell anybody. And I, and I go, what do you mean, Kenny? And he goes, look at the cadence of the ladies when they're walking. And sometimes they be bum, 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 I hadn't noticed that. And he shot the whole film like that. That's a big secret. You, many of you probably can know that. But that was the secret to the score. When they come out of the house and they end up on the on the on the blacktop and they don't know what it is, They're, that's all 
musically scored like you do a musical. Well, that's, you know, Kenny's Michael Jackson's choreographer for all these years, and Peggy exactly. Cummings is assistant. Yeah. I mean, they're choreographers, the so they brought all that there. By the way, and my only, can I say one thing about that? Salem footage is so gorgeous. Here's the funny part of the scene you mentioned. First, we had to record at night because I had to keep writing during the day. Do you remember this, David? So we'd go to the scoring stage at, I don't know, 8 o'clock at night, and we'd record into the wee hours, you know, 12 midnight. Or, and the very first piece of music that we had to play was that scene. And I had everybody, including my friend David, rightly so, they were going, oh, my God, how's this going to sound? What's, you know, what's this guy, what is he going to, what is it going to sound like? And luckily, that was the first piece of music that came up. And I was able to write a little theme for the love thing. And we did that cue. And it's kind of a wonderful cue with all the leaves falling. And, and, and we, we finished it. And I turned around. And David had the biggest smile on his face. And he went like that. And then I think all the Disney suits, everybody in the you know, suit and tie, they're all like, <sighs> okay. <laughs> And then I, you know, and then we just kept going for weeks and finished this thing. But anyway. just now, to talk a little bit about Salem. Well, yeah, uh, that's what I was getting at. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Because like, that's what thematically joins the two films we're screening tonight is Salem. Where, at what point did Salem become the focal, or like the focal point of the film, or as a location? Well, from the very beginning, you know, David's story was set there. I had never been there before, but I went on a location scout to to just learn a little bit about it. Well, Salem, around Halloween time, it's 10 days of celebration of Halloween, climaxing on Halloween night with a candlelight vigil of the witches of Salem going to Gallows Hill, where the witches were killed. Now, um, the witches of Salem are not what you think of. They're mostly really new age shop owners that are kind of assholes. Um, they're they're, they're can- candle and crystal shops. And- exactly. And they're very arrogant about their witchdom. And uh, if you're an outsider or non-believer, you know. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> May the but, record show but, Mick gave them the finger, but. Yes. <laughs> but Salem itself is an amazing place, and it still has the House of the Seven Gables is still there. It's this unbelievable pocket of time and atmosphere. This whole 10-day celebration that I literally every year after that on Halloween went back six years in a row just because I loved it so much. And that was still before the movie ever got made. So... <laughs> And now it runs basically from September to the end of October. There's, yeah. there's, there's Hocus Pocus tours. Yeah. You know, all, they take you to all the locations that we picked and found. And, wow. But, so I was going to ask you, David, what inspired you to go with Salem? Oh, what inspired you to go with Salem as the location for this film? Well, okay, uh, we, were, we were in Plymouth. Um, we were in Salem itself. Uh, we went to a recreation, that, that opening shot where the witches uh, are flying and you see them over the houses where they see the chimneys going. And that's a, that area has been recreated for tourists. It's we called the Pioneer to, Village. Yeah, yes, that's it, Pioneer Village. And we were able to build fires in there. Today you wouldn't be able to do that. You would just do it with effects. But we were able to take over that place and, and make that, ancient Salem. Yeah, well, you needed some real Salem in the picture. We, Marblehead we, also. And Marblehead, right? we shot in Marble, that beautiful Marblehead and all the cemeteries on the hills there. And, you know, it, 
Yeah, yeah. There's a Marblehead boy right out there, Brad Ricker. I was going to say, because, like, there's... There's plenty of places because they do Salem tours. You can go see the Ropes Mansion. You can see the Town Hall in this movie, which is also in Lords of Salem, which we'll be watching next. There's, um, you can see a lot of, a lot of stuff in there. Like, so you only shot a week at Salem, correct? And the rest was shot here in wonderful yeah, what, what Hollywood. Was, what was funny is a lot of the trick or treating we did in the old uh, town of uh, Whittier, Nixon's hometown. And we shot in November, as I remember, and everybody had their Christmas decorations up. So we came in, and we had to pay everybody to take down block after block their Christmas decorations and put up Halloween. And so people were driving in. It's kind of a tourist area because it's beautiful old uh, homes that haven't been torn down. And there's Halloween, and people are, what is going on here? (laughs) Because it was really Christmas time. So now, 25 years later, how do you all feel about seeing this film now and its legacy? Well, for me, it's the most unusual experience because I was involved eight years before it was made. The only time I was there was on the first day of shooting. Uh, Kenny invited me to be there and was an amazing gentleman. And and to see it all coming together was was incredible. But there were a lot of things that weren't what were in the original scripts. And so to see it become this iconic thing that every year it plays sold out for a week at the at the uh, El Capitan Theater down the street you know that it's become a halloween costume staple it's iconic and to have been a part of that the beginning stages of that it's really amazing and to sit and watch it it's fresher for me because I was not there during the production, as as all of you well, were. Look, so it's look kind at of thrilling. Bet, you know, last year at her big charity back in New York, she dressed as Winifred. She she loves that movie. She yeah. said it's her favorite film she's ever done. Yeah. Can I jump in? I'll jump in. Um, I would say to my dear friend David and all you amazing artists here, I think it's the best Halloween movie ever made. That's number one. And number two, certain people don't get this movie, and I don't understand, because the movie to me is about a brother and a sister, and the brother sacrifices himself ultimately for the, the life of his sister. It's about love. And those of you that were little girls or have little girls now, you know what that this movie's about. It's about that. I have... I know you do too, and most of us probably do. I have ladies now that have their daughters are grown, and they're bringing their daughters to these screenings. And they will come up to me with tears in my eyes, and I'm sure they do with you too, David, that this, they, this movie transcends something. And I think it's just about that. It's about love. That last scene, I start crying. I cried again tonight. It's the beauty of what you wrote. And the twentieth anniversary, we, yeah. we sat with our Five wives on the side of us, holding hands, <laughs> holding and crying hands at the and end. Crying at and the I end. cried tonight also. Well, I, I cried. Your cried score in. and and that that ending that we ripped off of of uh, of um, the Ghost and Mrs. Muir when when. Uh, when he goes off to heaven and takes her, it was just a scene that I always loved from the time I was a little boy, and we yeah. tried to recreate that, uh, that, that, that same kind of feeling. I don't think any of us, uh, or I won't speak for you guys, but for me, and, and Mick, you jump in here, 
I had no idea of any of this. We were going to make a Halloween movie, and that was exciting because we loved Halloween. We had no idea that it would be received the way that it would later on. Because at first, the reviews were tepid at best. Uh, we limped to first base, and it, that was the end of it. And then something happened because it started to run on, on the Disney Channel. And it would, you know, they would run it once, and then they would run it the next year twice. And then something just started to happen, and it started to build over years. And now it is the most viewed movie of any movie that's ever been seen on the Disney Channel, including Harry Potter films, E.T., or anything else. And, you know, I mean, we still have to pinch ourselves over the fact that that has happened. And it's become an entire business, licensing and other things that Disney asked me not to discuss tonight, but <laughs> other things that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that empire is, is going to be doing with it over the next two years. And so uh, we're, we're really excited. And it just, you know, I think all of us are, are, are kids in various forms that played in film as, as truly as kids and tried to come up with stuff. And Tony with his effects and everything that he built as a kid. And John with, with his music and Bill Sandel, I'm sure he walked around, you know, just completely redesigning everything that was in his parents' home. <laughs> I was in heaven. Uh, and all of this just came together with a... a a bunch of people that were incredibly young and 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 loved Halloween and with perspective and and great time, I can look at it now and see that I I don't think I did when we did it. I was thrilled that it was being made, but I I don't think I understood it. I mean, to be around people like Mick and and Tony and and Bill and and my dear musical friend down down there, John Debney, who's always makes me cry in his movies uh it, whether they're comedies or not there's just john debney pixie dust in there and he certainly threw that all over the screen here for us but it, it's one of those rare rare things where people don't walk away hating each other and it there's really just was this a, kind of was a happy set it, it was really a happy was. set, set. I, I think it's i think john hit it it's i think it's the uh brother sister thing between omri and uh, thora I get it gets me every time when they're by the house with the pumpkins and, and the headless zombie. At the end, well, and the, and the <laughs> you want, maybe the zombie too. Yeah, no, I I think that um, I don't know. It's just one of those experiences where, he, like I said before, you enjoyed going to work, but you also liked all the people you were with, and everybody was equally as passionate about what they were doing. I mean, we we're all in our own little worlds and focused on it, but if you looked at everybody. Everybody was genuinely enjoying what they were doing. And there was, I mean, Kenny sort of creates this sort of environment where you feel safe doing anything. And he's your biggest cheerleader, basically. And he had a relationship with the kids and, and built a relationship between all of them. And I think you can see that on screen. And when they have these 20-year reunions, you can see it between all of them. And I think that's really special because, in a way, it was a job we did for a couple months, but it stayed with us our whole lives. Yeah, and it keeps going. Well, I want to say thank you, gentlemen, for coming. Happy Halloween. Thank you. So, David, let's talk about the origin of this. I mean, you went from strawberry shortcake, creating strawberry shortcake, which gave you a very good life for you and your family, to... Uh, an American Tale, another family film, 
to Disney with Halloween House that became Hocus Pocus. But there's the darker side we'll get into after that, that there's a trajectory there that just drops off a cliff suddenly. So tell me how that came about. The origins of Hocus itself. Right, right. Um, I'd written a, a story for our I'd written a story for our daughters that at that point were uh, seven and five, a Halloween tale about witches that are brought back on Halloween night, the genies let out of the bottle, and uh, and they loved that story. And then I took that story and uh, Muppet Magazine, which used to be Jim Henson's magazine, was a, a kid's magazine, and they published a, a short version of the story, and that was the end of it. And when I had presented an American tale to Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, who passed on it. I'm not sure what kind of language I can use. On, on you can here. say any fucking thing you want. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, Jeffrey said to me, who the fuck is going to go see a film about a Jewish mouse? And I said, who's going to see a film about a wooden puppet? It's what you do with that character and story and the arc. Anyway, one of my prized possessions is a note from Jeffrey that says, dear David, now I know who the fuck is going to go see a film about a Jewish mouse. <laughs> and... Um, and Mazel Tov. Uh, so um, anyway, so uh, they they were interested in it. I don't know if they were as interested in it because the idea was an idea that appealed to them or was it was it the fact that they had passed on an American tale and Spielberg bought it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know as well as I do the magic of that, that Spielberg pixie dust on us. Absolutely. <laughs> so... Um, but nonetheless, as, as you said, it would take them eight years before they began to move forward with it. Uh, and uh, and once Bet was on board, then everything really began to explode quickly. That really changed. Now, you had just done an American tale for Stephen. I was working as a writer and story editor on Amazing Stories. And is that why you came to me was through the Spielberg connection? I think so. I, I, honestly, you were one of the few writers I knew. <laughs> I had read something of yours called Uncle Willie that I oh. love to this day. Yeah, I just, still it has never been made, and it's uh, the, the sample that got me hired by Spielberg in the first place. Oh, is that? I didn't yeah. know that was. Uh, and uh, we just hit it off. And okay. um, I think we were two young guys that, were, that had lots of dreams in front of us. And uh, I think we just hit it off. I knew how much you loved horror. Yeah. Disney did not want to view this in any way as a horror film, but it, I always call it, it's, it's baby's first horror film, really. <laughs> you know? That's because, the perfect description. <laughs> well, and originally, Disney's name was in the title, as it is now, but it was Disney's Halloween house yes. originally when we started That's this. That's right. And I, I still have my drawing of, of what that Halloween house looks like, which was... I was wrong on because I drew from a perspective of Victorian architecture, and this is 200 years before that. Right, because uh, this was in Salem, Massachusetts in the 17th century. Right. So a little history lesson from you with architecture (laughs) on that one. 1692, yeah. Yes. So, and that was really the beginning of it it all. I don't know if you want me to go into the yeah, room or anything as much else. as you want. Yeah. Uh, when when Jeffrey came into the room because I was going to present this this story to them about Halloween, I had um, witches' brooms hanging on monofilament wire from a ceiling like the kind that we have above us. I'm not sure what they're called, but uh, and uh, and I also had an Electrolux vacuum cleaner that I had the engine pulled out of, and that was hanging from a 
thicker monofilament wire. And so when they walked in, they saw witches' broomsticks kind of flying, and they saw an Electrolux vacuum cleaner. And I think right there they got the joke that that a vacuum cleaner is going to be used in this by one of the, the witches. Right. My wife took uh, a Ralph's bag and had kids draw ghosts and goblins on it, and then she filled it with like 25 pounds of candy corn, and I ripped the bottom in kind of a snake fashion in front of where they would be sitting, and they walked in and they smelled their childhood. They smelled Halloween, and I said, Halloween is a billion-dollar industry, and it's just going to keep growing, and there was nothing out there at that time for kids for Halloween. And um, it, it has since become a $10 billion business and uh, I think has has helped us both with, <laughs> yes. with Hocus uh, remaining in the public consciousness for all these years. So I'm sure you have the same experience that I do. When somebody finds out that we were responsible for creating Hocus Pocus, um, especially if they're female... It's like everybody from like five to fifty. That's my favorite movie. Yeah. I, I hear that all the time too. And I, uh, what, what the first time I really realized it was when friends of our younger daughters would come over and they would recite pages of dialogue. I mean, just pages that the witches say, that Danny says, that Allison says, that Max says, and they just they just knew line for line because they had seen it so many times. Well, it was interesting. I mean, it started out a little darker than it became, and maybe that's my fault. (laughs) Uh, I I certainly brought that into it. The movie is about 16-year-olds now and and Halloween, and when we did it, we talked a little bit about it at the Cinematheque, but the original script, the original idea was the kids were 12, and when you're 12, Halloween is really meaningful, and... It wasn't as slapstick, and although there was plenty of humor in it, it was indeed always intended to be a Disney movie. Um, It changed a bit. I have no idea what the other 11 writers after me did, and I know it went back to the structure that you and I had worked on together and a lot of the characters and Bad Billy Butcher and all of that stuff. But what were some of the permutations that didn't make it in? You don't have to assign names. (laughs) Yeah, Um, you know, I mean, there was there was an overall darkness to it, which I loved, and which we would not really see again in a movie until probably about the second, maybe third Harry Potter film. Mm. That things got that dark in in a family kind of movie, and um, I think that was. Your and my instinct. I mean, I love that, but Disney wanted to uh, sweeten it a, right. a little Brighten bit more. Brighten it up a little. Yeah. And, you know, with, with the casting of Bet, who I had never thought of for it. Yeah. I mean, she's great, but in my mind, I thought of, of Cloris Leachman um, because ah. I, I loved her so much in Young Frankenstein. Oh, so perfect. And so at Frau that point, Blucher. Frau Blucher, <laughs> which means glue factory. I don't know if you know that in Yiddish. <laughs> well, I didn't know. <laughs> that's why the horse always whinnies. Oh, that's now I get the joke right. 40 years later. Right. Yeah. So you did the same thing with Spielberg that you did with Katzenberg. But uh, I remember being in a conference room like this at Amblin when the two of us pitched it to Stephen and there was the cornucopia and all the candy corn and the brooms and all the iconography of Halloween presented it to Stephen and he, he loved it. 
I wish I, I wish I remembered that part. I don't. I'm just, that's always a problem I well, have, but I love listening to you talk about well, it. Well, I remember him being so enthusiastic about it. And when he's enthusiastic, you see it on oh, his face and, yeah. and he shares that. But I think what killed it for him was that it had already been pitched to Disney and Amblin and Disney were quite competitive right. at that time. Right. So you don't remember having any, any of those conversations with Stephen about why not? I, I don't. I don't. But I, I turn to you over the years for that, <laughs> especially the older I get. Yeah. I, I don't remember that. I just know that uh, Kathy said that I really, Kathy Kennedy said that I really disappointed him by not bringing it to him first. Right. And I was I was so upset that I had upset him. Right. I hadn't even thought of that, that he would even care. So, but, but this time it went the opposite direction. Disney said yes after Amblin said no, whereas right. in American Tale, right. That's Amblin right. said right. yes That's right. after Disney said no. So, so. karmic. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So where did the idea of the Sanderson sisters, which I credit to you, come from? They, I just kind of took a, a, an alliteration of the two S's there, Sanderson sisters, and put it together. I just thought it would be more frightening in the seven dwarfs form, except there's, there's, <laughs> there's three. And they're not short. <laughs> and they're not short. But just the idea of these different personalities, one who's loud and and proud and in charge and one who's a bit insecure and a sycophant to her big sister and the other one who's just completely ditzy. Yeah. And um, just the dynamics of, of these three women trying to work together and yeah. trying to get, trying to make sure that they get out of the bottle and, and are successful with what their curse was, which was sucking the lives out of children on All Hallows Eve. Now there's a dark plot for you for a Disney movie, but then again, Bambi's mother is burned in a fire. <laughs> yes. so, um, but I am curious, were there any uh, directions that the other writers took uh, that really were far afield or just some of the interesting places that these other minds might have taken. There were a host of writers that I never actually even read anything they did. Really? The studio just had them work on it. They looked at it. And if they didn't like it, none of us saw it. You never saw it. That's fascinating. Because for me, there was an eight-year span of time where I never heard a word about this movie after I had turned in two or three drafts of the script. And so I assumed it was dead. But during all of those eight years, was there activity going on? You know, it, it, no, it would die down for a year or two, and then it would be back. And then I would hear something, and then there would be disappointment with, that the script came in and they didn't want to share it. And I really just remember your script and Neil Cuthbert's, which just kind of did a comedy spin on, on really what you wrote. Um, so there really wasn't... Uh, there wasn't that big moment where they finally said until bet came on. And then I got right. a call from Jeffrey and said, we're making the movie. And I just, I just remember looking at the phone going, what, you uh, know, cause you just don't, you know, you're spread out over eight years and you're pretty sure. Yeah. This is dead. Yeah. Right. It's, maybe it'll happen one day, but, but she was at the height of her powers there. And right. she was with the newly formed Hollywood pictures had been putting out these these modestly budgeted comedies That's like right. Ruthless People and the like. And so she was huge in these things. And Beaches, her drama with them. <clears throat> so when she became a part of it, I was kind of knocked out. I had no idea. I got a call from you saying, guess who is going to star in Hocus Pocus? And we've got a green light. So 
Wow. That, that must have been a great call. <laughs> it was an amazing call <laughs> because another thing people may not understand is that you get a bonus when a movie gets made. <laughs> so here I'd been paid eight years ago for a screenplay, and oh boy, I'm going to get that much again. At the very beginning of your career. At the very beginning right. of my career. Yeah. It, was, it was my first studio feature deal uh, right. as a writer. Right. <laughs> wasn't the first one made, but... but uh, so tell me about... Your interest in this dark side, for a guy who created Strawberry Shortcake, you also created Chucky, uh, the, evil, the evil doll of the Child's Play movies. So I'd love to hear about where that comes from. Well, it's so easy for me, this answer, because it's something people often wonder, how, you know, where I took a wrong turn from <laughs> from animation to something so dark, which, of course, I love. It's no wrong turn in this room. <laughs> yes, <actually. laughs> or building. Yeah. Um, by day, I would say children imagine and pretend. And children have the most glorious of imaginations. But come nightfall, children have the darkest of imaginations. If what's underneath the bed, of Daddy, there's something in my closet, Mom... Can you take my coat and hang it up because it looks like this monster? Mm -hmm. And I think I've just held on to those same things that make me love animation so much. And it's all the stuff that goes bump in the night. It's just how it goes bump. Sometimes it's it's darker when you and I can get an R rating <laughs> on one of our films. And when it's uh, when it's PG or PG-13, we pull back, but we also use a great deal of imagination of, of what's in the mind and what's just what's out there down a dark hallway without seeing anything. But in, in the 1870s, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was the toast of Victorian England with um, Kidnapped. Right. And he then turned around and wrote um, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right. And the London Times said that he should be banned from Victorian society. Women uh -huh. were fainting by just the idea of what Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were about. Wow. And um, then he turned around and wrote A Children's Garden of Verses. Right. And so to... And Treasure Island. And Treasure <laughs> Island. And it's, it's, it's a mistake to ever say to a, a creative person... You should, you just belong in in this box. I mean, I think Walt Disney did it so brilliantly with beautiful songs, but there were terrifying moments. You spoke of Bambi's mother being shot, and uh, all the way to when he was gone to Lion King, and you know yeah. the death and separation of a parent, and very Shakespearean in 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 its form. Um, and and I I think it's the same with with animation. There's those moments like in Up that. You know, you're watching it, and these two are the best of friends in the world. And then you begin to see them grow old together, and then she passes away, and you're floored. I mean, yeah. you're 10 minutes into a movie. That never happens at the beginning of a movie. And um, Or Coco with, you know, the murder of, of his grandfather. Yeah, and oh, that's the, an the twist, so you know, yeah. you don't see a twist like that coming in animation. Yeah. And it's, it's just it's wonderful just to see these two worlds kind of moving together of things that go bump in the night and things that that could touch your heart so but that they're wrapped in 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 one package of of entertainment. Well, I had something Steven Spielberg once told me something that kind of made me sad. Uh he said I would love 
to tell you some of these ideas I have that make David Cronenberg seem like Walt Disney. But because of who I am and where I am, I can't tell those stories myself. Wow, I never knew that. And I've never heard it spoken about and, and all, but it was kind of revelatory to me that he had been put in a box. The most successful filmmaker in history had himself put limits on what he was able to do because at that time it was just a couple of years after he'd made E.T. and and Poltergeist and all of these things and and he became the king of family media as well as the most successful filmmaker ever but it just kind of knocked me out because I'm certainly boxed into the horror genre which I don't mind at all because there's so much range within that but um You've been the horror genre and in the family film world. So that's kind of a wild garden to grow. Right. Um, yeah, it's just kind of where my head normally goes. I just love, I just love again, those things that go bump in the night. And uh, whether it's Halloween or a killer doll or... <laughs> Uh, the Bill Paxton movie Frailty we did, yeah, you know, that's just terrific. And you know, Paxton directed that as well. Yes, yeah. he did, and did an amazing job. And but I love exploring childhood. That to me is the essence of everything. Whether it's kids letting witches uh, out on Halloween, or or a Jewish mouse, or a, <laughs> or a little monkey named Curious George, I love the exploration of childhood. And sometimes that's live action. Sometimes it's animation. Uh, and sometimes it's something as dark as frailty where dad is saying the world is coming to an end and it is your responsibility, God told me, that mm -hmm. we go out and murder people so that because these are demons. And not an easy movie to get made, for sure. Yeah, but a terrific movie. Um, what were the movies that inspired you as a kid? What were the things that made you go, I want to do this? Uh, the first time I really saw a movie that made me say I want to be part of that was How the West Was Won. And I'm not even sure why, but I saw it at uh, the cinema. Uh, the Cinerama? Cinerama Dome. Yeah. And uh, just seeing it that huge and seeing a runaway train that was so real to me, I just wanted to be part of that. I didn't know what that meant. So from about that age, I started making little movies with my dad's camera and stop motion animation. Oh, really? Stuff. Like eight millimeter? Yes, I, I Super did the Eight. Same yeah, thing. only I was eight. <laughs> Pre Super Eight. This is <laughs> yeah. and so I would sculpt my sandbox and I would work on a model for like a week of one of Columbus's ships, wow. and uh, and then take glue. And set it on fire and have my friend push me around the sandbox with a garbage dolly <laughs> and just film this thing as it was burning. Stuff, you know, that 10-year-old boys love to do. One of the things that I don't think people know about you is that you're a terrific artist. That you designed Fievel and all of the characters, these animation characters, Strawberry Shortcake and that. Do you paint? Do you still find time to paint and create in that I do. Way? I'm not as good as I used to be. Uh, just, you know, with some, some spine problems, uh, I have a little bit of a, a shame. So I've kind of changed a little bit of my my tightness to something looser. But I, I can still convey an idea to a director and to a studio. And uh, in the case of Chucky, you know, Don had written a, a really interesting script. And from there... Don I, Mancini, yeah. Yeah, Don Mancini, who's been my partner for 30-something years. And uh, and so from there, I just did my drawings of, of what I thought a scary killer doll might, might look like. Do you paint for yourself? Not really. 
You don't um, just. It's, it's a process. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's it's labor. Purposeful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people, it's it's it's. There's great joy with it. I, for me, it's 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 a battle, and and I I love coming out the other side and seeing what I have, but it's also, uh, you know, for for every interesting character that I might have created. Uh, there's there's you know 200 that that have never That's gone up. anywhere you know and you know yeah. that as a writer you know yeah. we just work so hard and well the first thing i wanted to do was draw my father had gone to art school and all of that and i drew okay but once i started writing i just gave it up i just quit doing it well you, you illustrated with those words of yours <laughs> well um tell me did having children make a difference in the approach to what you wanted to create because you're the father of beautiful daughters and they were you. quite young at the time of Halloween House, uh, Hocus Pocus, and Strawberry Shortcake. Did that those things happen because of being a parent? I, I would say yes, but I'm not sure because I never didn't have children. But right. I so loved childhood, and to experience it again through their eyes was something. That's why we took them everywhere we went in the world and different museums and libraries just to see what their response would be. And it really was cathartic for me to, to witness that. And it is today as a grandfather of, of three and just watching their eyes through certain things. Uh, it's just, it's so exciting to me. And so I, I think I love being around kids for that reason. It just, it, it uh, I don't know, puts me in touch with something that I felt when I was 10 years old as well. And when you're sitting in a, in a Chucky movie with an audience, what is the feeling of that? I mean, it's always terror because you want to make sure that uh, that they're going to jump at the right places. They're going to, in the case of Chucky, laugh at the right places. Yeah, there's a lot of humor in, in so, the Child's Play movies, too. So, um, so you know, I, I think I'm always nervous about that. And I'm, of course, always nervous that everybody's lying to me after one of those screenings. <laughs> Because we've all done it, right? You know, Absolutely. we just don't want somebody to feel bad. Well, what was your feeling about two different things? The first time you saw Hocus Pocus finished and with an audience. And then, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw it 25 years after the fact with another big audience. Yeah. Uh, that night that we saw it, I was, of course, very nervous but the audience just loved it and just laughed at all the right places and kids kind of seemed spooked. Um, and Jeffrey afterward came up to me and said, buddy, it could not have gone better. But it really wasn't a harbinger of what was to come because what was to come was some pretty mixed reviews to be polite and, yeah. uh, and kind of barely making it to first base. And so I thought that was the end of it. And weirdly... Something began to happen about five years later when Disney introduced the Disney Channel. Yeah, yeah, and suddenly it started popping up. And then all of a sudden, you know, in the last years, there's a there's a a, a send up play of Hocus Pocus, which is very funny. They do a great job. Oh, the unauthorized. Yes, Hocus. I've seen the musical. Yes, yes, it's a lot of fun. And then uh, also at Florida, there they've built the uh, Hocus Pocus. Villain spooktacular that sells out for almost seven weeks every year at Halloween, and they're bringing it to the Hyperion Theater either this year or next year. Uh, I'm not sure which, but great. it'll hold 1,500 people. Excellent, excellent. So tell me what it felt like. I know what it felt like for me to sit in that in the Cinematheque after 25 years the movie had, had been out. Um, for me, it was like, 
wow, I, I feel such a connection to it and I feel such a distance from it as well uh, because my experience was not the solid eight years of work that you had putting into it. So were there moments in particular during that screening where um, it sparked a feeling, a nostalgia from where oh. it all began? Uh, every time John Debney, the composer, uh, and I spoke about this, we actually, at the 20th anniversary, we sat with our wives on either side of us and John and I sitting together, and at the end we're holding hands and weeping, like just completely gone because the emotions are so great because so much has happened in our careers and our lives, people that have come into our lives now and people that have left our lives now. And it was it was very, very emotional. And when I saw it with you, it was the same thing. It just always chokes me up at that with the ending. When the ending always gets me wet, you know, right, and I right. mean the eyes. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it always works and, and it it just feels like something magical. Anyway, thank you, David, for sharing oh, thank this. Thank you. With thank me. you for I having mean, me. It was a great experience to to work on this movie together and then to be apart from it and then to come back together and see it happen again. And now every year this movie comes back to haunt us in yes. the best ways. In the in the best ways. And thank you because obviously at that point I didn't know you would grow into this master of horror. And as that guy that, that wrote the screenplay for for Hocus Pocus that has all the all the things, all the bumps in the night that, that, that I love and wanted and that you created just just well, brings it to another level. It's a yeah. lot of flavors is what I always say about that film. Yeah, it wouldn't have happened without you. You were the mastermind who oh. created the template for this oh. movie. So thanks for that and thanks for sharing it with Thank us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right. Happy Halloween. <laughs> That'll throw people. <laughs> any day of the year. Yeah, any day of the year. <laughs> If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.